Welcome to the Time Machine Talk Show. Here's your host, Miss Ziegler. History scholars, this is Miss Sickler with the Time Machine Talk Show, and this week we're going to be talking about World War One. So go ahead and turn to page 982 of your textbook. Your first question that we're looking at is what aspects of Europe's 19th century history contributed to the First World War? All right, let's get started. Underneath the title that says The First World War European Civilization and Crisis, 1914 to 1918, that's where we'll go. And it says, since 1500, Europe had assumed an increasingly prominent position on the global stage, driven by its growing military capacity and the marvels of its scientific and industrial revolution. By 1900, Europeans, or people with a European ancestry, largely controlled the world's other peoples through their formal empires, their informal influence, or the weight of their numbers. That's talking about imperialism there. That unique situation provided the foundation for Europe's pride, self-confidence, and self, or sense of superiority. Few could have imagined that this proud tower of European dominance would lie shattered less than a half century later. The starting point in the unraveling was the First World War. Europe's modern transformation and its global ascendancy were certainly not accompanied by a growing unity or stability among its own peoples. Quite the opposite. The most obvious division was among its competing states, a long-standing feature of European political life. Rivalries further sharpened as both Italy and Germany joined their fragmented territories into two major new powers around 1870. That would be the unification of Germany and Italy that they're talking about there. The arrival on the international scene of a powerful, rapidly industri industrializing Germany seeks its place in the sun was a disruptive new element in European political life, especially for the more established powers such as Britain, France, and Russia. Since the defeat of Napoleon in 1815, a fragile and fluctuating balance of power had generally maintained the peace among Europe's major countries. By the early 20th century, that balance of power was expressed in two rival alliances, the Triple Alliance of Germany, Italy, and Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Triple Entity of Russia, France, and Britain. Those commitments undertaken in the interest of national security transformed a relatively minor incident in the Balkans into a conflagration that consumed almost all of Europe. That incident occurred on June 28, 1914, when a Serbian nationalist assassinated the heir to Austria-Hungary's throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand. To the rulers of Austria-Hungary, the surging nationalism of Serbian Slavs was a mortal threat to the cohesion of their fragile multinational empire, which included other Slavic peoples as well. Thus, they determined to crush it. But behind Austro-Hungary lay its far more powerful ally, Germany, and behind tiny Serbia lay Russia, with its self-proclaimed mission of protecting other Slavic peoples. Allied to Russia was the French and the British. Thus, a system of alliances intended to keep the peace created obligations that drew the great powers of Europe into a general war by early August 1914. So if you remember the acronym MAIN, M-A-I-N, that will help you remember the causes of World War I. And A stands for alliances. That's what this paragraph is talking about. So basically, when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was killed, Austria-Hungary was upset with Serbia because he was killed by a Serbian nationalist. 
If it would have just been those two countries involved, then it wouldn't have turned into a world war. But the problem was both of those countries had alliances, and the alliances backed up the other one. So for Austria-Hungary, they had Germany as alliance, Serbia had Russia, then Russia also had the French and the British behind them. And so that caused what is kind of like a domino effect to happen. All right, so remember our question is, what aspects of Europe's 19th century history contributed to World War I? So you can put down that the unification of Germany and Italy definitely contributed to that because it disrupted the balance of power in Europe at the time. You can also say that militarism, that would be the M in Maine, that means that um, the European powers were trying to build bigger militaries. And then nationalism would be the N in Maine. Nationalism means that they're having pride in their country and pride in like being a part of that nation. And the I in Maine is imperialism. So that plays a part too because they're kind of competing to see who can be the biggest imperialistic power. All right, let's keep going. It says, the outbreak of that war was something of an accident in that none of the major states planned or predicted the Archduke's assassination or deliberately sought a prolonged conflict. But the system of rigid alliances made Europe vulnerable to that kind of accident. Moreover, behind those alliances lay other factors that contributed to the eruption of the war and shaped its character. One of them was a mounting popu popular nationalism. So this is your N in Maine, nationalism. Slavic nationalism and Austro-Hungarian opposition to it certainly lay at the heart of the war's beginning. More importantly, the rulers of the major countries of Europe saw the world as an arena of conflict and competition among rival nation-states. The great powers of Europe competed intensely for colonies, spheres of influence, and superiority in armaments. Sphere of influence is important to write down. That is when another country has control of another country's developments. And then you can also write down armaments means military supplies and machinery. All right, going on with the reading, it says schools, mass media, and military service had convinced millions of ordinary Europeans that their national identities were profoundly and personally meaningful. The public pressure of these competing nationalisms allowed statesmen little room for compromise and ensured widespread popular support, at least initially, for the decision to go to war. Many men rushed to recruiting offices, fearing that the war might end before they could enlist. Celebratory parades sent, off, sent them off to the front. British women were encouraged to present a white feather, a symbol of cowardice, to men not in uniform, thus affirming a warrior understanding of masculinity. For conservative governments, the prospect of war was a welcome occasion for national unity in the face of mounting class and gender-based conflicts in European society. So beside nationalism, you can say that People were very proud to be a part of their country, and they wanted to represent their country in war. And if you didn't, you weren't considered a man. Also contributing to the war was an industrialized militarism. So this would go with your M, militarism. Europe's armed rivalries had long ensured that military men enjoyed a great social prestige, and most head of state wore uniforms in public. All of the great powers had substantial standing armies, except for Britain, relied on conscription or compulsory military service to staff them. One expression of the quickening rivalry among these states was a mounting arms and naval warships, particularly between Germany and Britain. 
Furthermore, each of the major states had developed elaborate war plans that spelled out in great detail the movement of men materials that should occur immediately upon the outbreak of the war. Such plans created a hair-trigger mentality since each country had an incentive to strike first so that its particular strategy could be implemented on schedule and without interruption of surprise. The rapid industrialization of warfare had generated an array of novel weapons, including submarines, tanks, airplanes, poison gas, machine guns, and barbed wire. The new military technology contributed to staggering casualties of war, including some 10 million deaths, the vast majority male. Perhaps twice the number were wounded, crippled, or disfigured for countless women. As a result, there would be no husbands or children. So you need to put down under militarism that it was just this increased industrial um, military output. And some of the things that they made were submarines, tanks, airplanes, poison gas, machine guns, and barbed wire. Those are all important because that's like brand new technology for the time. The other thing that you're going to write down is that this new technology caused a lot of deaths, more than in wars past. Okay, so the next paragraph is going to talk about imperialism. This would be your I in Maine. Europe's imperial reach around the world likewise shaped the scope and conduct of the war. It funneled colonial troops and laborers by the hundreds of thousands into the war effort, with men from Africa, India, China, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and South Africa taking part in the conflict. Battles raged in Africa and the South Pacific as British and French forces sought to seize German colonies abroad. Japan, allied with Britain, took various German possessions in China and the Pacific and made heavy demands on China itself. The Ottoman Empire, which entered the conflict on the side of Germany, became the site of intense military actions and witnessed an Arab revolt against Ottoman control. Finally, the United States, after initially seeking to avoid involvement in European quarrels, joined the war in 1917 when German submarines threatened American shipping. Some two million Americans took part in the first U.S. military action on European soil and helped turn the tide in favor of the British and the French. Thus, the war, though centered in Europe, had global dimensions and certainly merited its title as a world war. So imperialism plays a part because they include all of the colonies in the war and they pull men from these colonies to fight in the war as well as having battles in the different colonial areas. So make sure and put that down for imperialism. So just to review, MAIN stands for militarism, alliances, imperialism, and nationalism. That's an easy way to remember the four causes of World War I. All right, let's look at your next question. It says, in what ways did World War I mark new departures in the history of the 20th century? So, the Great War shattered almost every expectation. Most Europeans believed in the late summer of 1914 that boys will come home by Christmas, but instead the war ground relentlessly on for more than four years before ending in a German defeat in November of 1918. At the beginning, most military experts expected a war of movement and attack, but it soon bogged down on the Western Front into a war of attrition in which trench warfare resulted in enormous casualties while gaining or losing only a few yards of muddy, blood-soaked ground. Extended battles lasting months, such as those of Verdun and the Somme in France, generated casualties of millions or much more, as the destructive potential of industrialized warfare made itself tragically felt. War of attrition just means a prolonged war or drawn-out war.
answer the first part of your question, you can write down that this war was very destructive and it also altered the political map of Europe. Let's go on with your reading. It says, moreover, everywhere it became a total war requiring the mobilization of each country's entire population. You can put that down for your answer too, that it became a total war where the entire population had to become involved. Thus, the authority of governments expanded greatly. The German state, for example, assumed such control over the economy that its policies became known as war socialism. Vast propaganda campaigns sought to arouse citizens by depicting a cruel and inhumane enemy who killed innocent children and violated women. Labor unions agreed to suspend strikes and accept sacrifices for common good, while women replacing men who had left the factories for the battlefront temporarily abandoned the struggle for the vote. No less surprising was the longer-term outcomes of the war. In the European cockpit of conflict, unprecedented casualties, particularly among elite and well-educated groups, and physical destruction, especially in France, led to a widespread disillusionment among intellectuals with their own civilization. So you can put that down, too, that it was so destructive that intellectuals or the smarter people of the civilizations started to like wonder if this was the way that they should things should be done. The war seemed to mock the Enlightenment values of progress, tolerance, and rationality. Who could believe any longer that the West was superior or that its vaunted science and technology were unquestionably good things? In the most famous novel to emerge from the war, the German veteran Eric Remarque's All Quiet on the Western Front, one soldier expressed what many no doubt felt. It must all be lies of no account when the culture of a thousand years could not prevent this stream of blood being poured out. The aftermath of the war also brought substantial social and cultural changes to ordinary Europeans and Americans. Integrating millions of returning veterans into civilian life was no easy task, for they had experienced horrors almost beyond imagination. Governments sought to accommodate them, in Britain, for example, with housing programs called Homes for Heroes, emphasizing traditional family values. Women were urged to leave factory work and return to their homes where they would not compete for men's jobs. French authorities proclaimed Mother's Day as a new holiday designed to encourage childbearing and thus replace the millions lost in the war. Nonetheless, the war had loosened the hold of tradition in various ways. Enormous casualties promoted social mobility, allowing the less exalted to move into positions previously dominated by the upper classes. As the war ended, suffrage movement revived and women received the right to vote in a number of countries, Britain, the United States, Germany, the Soviet Union, Hungary, and Poland, in part perhaps because of the sacrifices that had made during the conflict. So I put this down for your question that we are answering for question number two, that tradition started to ease and social mobility was easier than before the war, and that women gained the right to vote in many countries, and you can put down some examples. Young middle-class women, sometimes known as flappers, became the to flout convention by appearing at nightclubs, smoking, dancing, drinking hard liquor, cutting their hair short, and wearing revealing clothing, and generally expressing a more open sexuality. A new consumerism encouraged those who could to acquire cars, washing machines, vacuum cleaners, electric iron, irons, gas ovens, and other newly available products. Radio and the movies now became vehicles of popular culture, transmitting American jazz to Europe 
and turning Hollywood stars into international celebrities. So you can put down that culture is changing as far as women are getting a little bit more open with their sexuality and they are going against norms. You can also put down that consumerism is on the rise. People are starting to buy more things and that culture is changing in the movies, that movies are becoming more popular. The war also transformed international political life. From the collapse of the German, Russian, and Austro-Hungary empires emerged a new map of Central Europe with an independent Poland, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and other nations. Such new states were based on the principle of national self-determination, a concept championed by U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, but each of them also continued dissatisfied ethnic minorities who claimed the same principle. So basically self-determination, you need to put that down, and that was just ruling themselves. In Russia, the strains of war triggered a vast revolutionary upheaval that brought the radical Bolsheviks to power in 1917 and took Russia out of the war. Thus was launched world communism, which was to play such a prominent role in the history of the 20th century. So the Russian Revolution uh, takes out the czar and puts the communist in charge. The Treaty of Versailles, which formally concluded the war in 1919, proved in retrospect to have established conditions that contributed to the Second World War only, only 20 years later. In that treaty, Germany lost its colonial empire and 15% of its European territory, was required to pay heavy reparations to the winners, had its military forces severely restricted, and had to accept sole responsibility for the outbreak of the war. All of this created an immense resentment in Germany. One of the country's many demobilized and disillusioned soldiers declared in 1922, it cannot be that two million Germans should have fallen in vain. No, we do not pardon. We demand vengeance. His name was Adolf Hitler, and within two decades, he had begun to exact the vengeance. So basically, they're saying that in the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was blamed for everything, and they had to pay a huge reparation. This gave Hitler the ammunition that he needed to get people to back him and to support that vengeance. So the Great War generated profound changes in the world beyond Europe as well. During the conflict, Ottoman authorities, suspecting that some of their Armenian subjects were collaborating with the Russian enemy, massacred or deported an estimated one million Armenians. That would be the Armenian Genocide. Although the term genocide had not yet been invented, some historians have applied it to those atrocities, arguing that they established a precedent on which the Nazis later built. The war also brought a final end to the declining Ottoman Empire, creating the modern map of the Middle East with the new states Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Palestine. Thus, Arabs emerged from Turkish rule, but many of them were governed for a time by the British or the French as mandates of the League of Nations. Conflicting British promises to both Arabs and Jews regarding Palestine set the stage for an enduring struggle over the ancient and holy land. Although Native American countries remained bystanders in the war, many of them benefited from the growing demand for their primary products such as Chilean nitrates used in explosives. But the sharp drop in nitrate exports after the war ended brought to Chile mass unemployment, urban riots, bloody strikes, and some appeal for the newly established Chilean Communist Party. So you'll also want to put down for that question that the collapse of the Ottoman Empire after World War I resulted in political fragmentation of the Middle East and the emergence of several new countries. And you can put down that there were conflicting promises to both the Arabs and the Jews, which is going to cause strife in 
in Palestine as well. In the world of European colonies, the war echoed loudly. Millions of Asians and African men had watched Europeans butcher one another without mercy, had gained new military skills and political awareness, and returned home with less respect for their rulers and with expectations for better treatment as a reward for their service. To gain Indian support for the war, the British had publicly promised to put that colony on the road to self-government, an announcement that set the stage for the independent struggle that followed. In East Asia, Japan emerged strengthened from the war and European support for its claim to take over German territory privileges in China. That news enraged Chinese nationalists and among a few sparked an interest in the Soviet-style communism. For only the new communist ruler of Russia seemed willing to end the imperialistic penetration of China. Some notes about how China starts to look towards communism as a result of the First World War. Finally, the First World War brought the United States to the center stage as a global power. Its manpower had contributed much to the defeat of Germany, and its financial resources turned the United States from a debtor nation into Europe's creditor. When American President Woodrow Wilson arrived in Paris for the peace conference in 1919, he was greeted with the almost religious enthusiasm. His famous 14 points seemed to herald a new kind of international life one based on moral principles rather than secret deals and imperialistic manications. Particularly appealing to many was his idea for the League of Nations, a new international peacekeeping organization committed to the principle of collective security and intended to avoid any repetition of the horrors that had just ended. Wilson's idealistic vision largely failed, however. Germany was treated more harshly than he had wished, and in his own country, the U.S. Senate refused to join the League, on which Wilson had pinned hopes for a lasting peace. Its opponents feared that Americans would be forced to bow to the will of other nations. The refusal seriously weakened the League of Nations as a vehicle for a new international order. So put down some notes about the League of Nations there. Uh, Woodrow Wilson's attempt to try to get all nations to come together and kind of protect each other. Okay, let's go on with question number three. Question number three is, in what ways was the Great Depression a global phenomenon? And we're on page 990. It says, far and away, the most influential change of the post-war decades lay in the Great Depression. If World War I represented the political collapse of Europe, this catastrophic downturn suggested that Western capitalism was likewise failing. During the 19th century, that economic system had spurred the most substantial economic growth in world history and had raised the living standards of millions. But so many people, it was a troubling system. Its very success generated an individualistic materialism that seemed to conflict with the older values of community and spiritual life. To socialists, as many others, its immense social inequalities were unacceptable. Furthermore, its evident instability with cycles of boom and bust, expansion and recession generated profound anxiety and threatened the livelihood of both industrial workers and those who had gained a modest toehold in the middle class. Never had the flaws of capitalism been so evident or so devastating as during the decade that followed the outbreak of the Great Depression in 1929. All across the Euro-American heartland of the capitalistic world, this vaulted economic system seemed to unravel. For the rich, it meant contracting stock prices that wiped out paper fortunes overnight. 
On the day that the American stock market initially crashed, October 24, 1929, 11 Wall Street financiers committed suicide, some by jumping out of skyscrapers. Banks closed and many people lost their life savings. Investment dried up, world trade dropped by 62% within a few years, and businesses contracted when they were unable to sell their products. For ordinary people, the worst feature of the Great Depression was loss of work. Unemployment soared everywhere, and in both Germany and the United States, it reached 30% or more by 1932. Vacant factories, soup kitchens, bread lines, shanty towns, and beggars came to symbolize the human reality of this economic disaster. Explaining its onset, it spread from America to Europe and beyond, and its com- uh, continuation for a decade has been a complicated task for historians. Part of the story lies in the United States' booming economy during the 1920s. In a country physically untouched by the Great War, wartime demand had greatly stimulated agricultural and industrial capacity. By the end of the 1920s, its farms and factories were producing more goods than could be sold because a highly unequal distribution of income meant that many people could not afford to buy the products that American factories were churning out. Nor were major European countries able to produce those goods. Germany and Austria had to make huge reparation payments and were able to do so only with extensive U.S. loans. Britain and France, which were much indebted to the United States, depended on those reparations to repay their loans. Furthermore, Europeans generally had recovered enough to begin producing some of their own goods, and their expanding production further reduced the demand for for American products. Meanwhile, the speculative stock market frenzy had driven up stock prices to an unsustainable level. When that bubble burst in late 1929, this uh, intricately connected and fragile economic network across the Atlantic collapsed like a house of cards. Much as Europe's worldwide empires had globalized the Great War, so too its economic linkages globalized the Great Depression. Countries or colonies tied to exporting one or two products were especially hard hit. Colonial Southeast Asia, the world's major rubber-producing region, saw the demand for its primary export drop dramatically as automobile sales in Europe and the United States were cut in half. In Britain, West Africa's colony of the Gold Coast, Farmers who had staked their economic lives on producing cocoa for the world market were badly hurt by the collapse of commodity prices. Latin American countries whose economies were based on the export of agricultural products and raw materials were also vulnerable to major fluctuations on the world market. The region as a whole saw the value of its exports cut by half during the Great Depression. In an effort to maintain the price of coffee, Brazil destroyed enough of its crops to have supplied the world for a year. Such conditions led to widespread unemployment and social tension. Those tensions of the Depression era often found political expression in Latin America in the form of military takeover of the state. Such governments sought to steer their countries away from an earlier dependence on exports toward a policy of generating their own industries. Known as import substitution, industrialization, such policies hoped to achieve a greater economic independence by manufacturing for the domestic market goods that had previously been exported. Those efforts were accompanied by more authoritarian and intrusive governments that played a greater role in the economy by enacting tariffs, setting up state-run industries and favoring local businesses. They often adopted a highly nationalistic and populist uh, posture as they sought to 
er, extricate themselves from economic domination by the United States and Europe and to respond to the growing urban classes of workers and entrepreneurs. So in your answer to that question, you're going to say that uh, industrial production from Europe and the United States required foreign markets. But if those markets were going to dry up, then industrial production also collapsed. You can say as well that countries and colonies tied to the exports uh, would be affected too when the markets dried up. So basically, when the Great Depression happens in the United States, it affects all markets in the rest of the world as well. Okay, so it goes on to talk about this in more detail, and it says, In Brazil, for example, the Depression discredited the established export elites, such as coffee growers, and led to the dictatorship of Gentilo Vargas. Supported by the military, his government took steps to modernize the urban industrial sector of the economy, including a state enterprise to manufacture trucks and airplane engines and regulations that gave the state considerable power over both unions and employers. But little was done to alleviate rural poverty. In Mexico, the Depression opened the way to a revival of the principles of the Mexican Re Revolution under the leadership of Lazaro Cardenas. He pushed land reform, favored Mexican workers against foreign interests, and nationalized an oil industry dominated by American capital. These are but two cases of the many political and economic changes stimulated in Latin America by the Great Depression. Many of those changes, the growing role of the army in the politics, authoritarian, populist, and interventionist governments, import substitution, industrialization, and the assumption that governments should improve economic life persisted in the decades that followed. The Great Depression also sharply challenged the governments of industrialized capitalist countries, which generally had believed that the economy could regulate itself through the market. The market's apparent failure to self-correct led many people to look twice at the Soviet Union, the communist state that grew out of the Russian Revolution and encompassed much of the territory of the old Russian Empire. There, the dispossession of the property classes and a state-controlled economy had generated an impressive economic growth with almost no unemployment in the 1930s, even in the capitalist world was reeling. No Western country opted for the dictatorial or draconian socialism of Soviet Union, but in Britain, France, and Scandinavia, the Depression energized a democratic socialism that sought greater regulation of the economy and more equal distribution of wealth through peaceful means and electoral processes. So socialism kind of comes about because of this depression that was going on in Europe. However, the United States is different, and it goes on to say, the United States' response to the Great Depression came in the form of President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, an experimental combination of reforms seeking to restart economic growth and to prevent similar calamities in the future. These measures reflected the thinking of John Maynard Keynes, a prominent British economist who argued that government action and spending programs could moderate the recession and depression to which capitalist economies were prone. Although this represented a departure from standard economic thinking, none of it was really socialist, even if some of the New Deal's opponents labeled it as such. Nonetheless, the Roosevelt's efforts permanently altered the relationship among government, the economic or the private economy and individual citizens. 
Through immediate programs of public spending for dams, highways, bridges, and parks, the New Deal sought to prime the pump of the economy and thus reduce unemployment. The New Deal's longer-term reforms, such as social security system, the minimum wage, and various relief and welfare programs attempted to create a modest economic safety net to sustain the poor, the unemployed, and the elderly. By supporting labor unions, the New Deal strengthened workers in their struggles with business owners or managers. Subsidies for farmers gave rise to a permanent agribusiness that encouraged and continued production even as prices fell. Finally, a mounting number of government agencies marked a new degree of federal regulation and supervision of the economy. Ultimately, none of the New Deal's programs worked very well to end the Great Depression. Not until the massive government spending required by World War II kicked in did that economic disaster abate in the United States. The most successful effort to cope with the Depression came from unlikely places, Nazi Germany and an increasingly militaristic Japan. All right, so a couple of things to note here. In 2006, the AP World Exam comparative essay was about comparing and contrasting the goals and outcome of revolutionary process in two of the following countries, and two of those were Mexico and China. Another one was Russia. So knowing these revolutions would be really, really good. So just take notes of some of the things that they talked about with China and Mexico here. And then also know that you are required to know that capitalist governments began to take a more active role in economic life. And one example is the New Deal in the United States. So those are your first three questions for your reading questions. And I'm going to stop the podcast here and do a couple of different parts just so I can make sure that this volume is fixed because it's really annoying me. And if you have not subscribed yet to Time Machine Teacher, that's my new YouTube channel that I just put out some DBQ reviews on and I will also have some other things up today that will help you review period five. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I'll see you on the next edition.